and they were going to pair Arnold Schwarzenegger with a bunch of top YouTubers. But they still couldn't find a producer. And then Melissa pulled me aside one day and was just like, all right, I think you're going to produce this. If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. You guys, I am so excited for today's guest because she has so much great information for writers, directors, and producers, or anyone looking to get hired by a producer. Kristen Rancascio is a writer, director, VMA-nominated producer, and founder of production company Exit 12. She just returned from South by Southwest 2023, where she was representing Jillian Bell's directorial debut, a narrative music video Kristen produced, starring Charlie Day and Mary Elizabeth Ellis for artist Ben Abraham. Kristen wrote and directed the first digital pilot for the sci-fi network titled Resistance and was a top 10 directing finalist in HBO's Project Greenlight. Her writing credits include a teen spy action screenplay for Legendary Digital and Skybound Entertainment's Grindstone Workshop. Her producing credits include seven music videos for Grammy and Oscar-winning artist Phineas, web series Terminator Genesis, The YouTube Chronicles, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lily Singh, and videos and digital content for top artists and creators, including Usher, Kesha, Sebu from Capital Cities, Whitney Avalon, and Joey Graceffa. Today, we're talking about what it was like for Kristen to come to LA and have her first ever pitch meeting opposite Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, how she went from not knowing anyone in LA to knowing the right people to connect her with jobs, and when she knew it was the right time to create her own company. Let's get into the interview. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on to one of the very early episodes of No Set Path. It is an honor. So I know you have so much wisdom from all these different phases of your journey and all the different types of projects that you've worked on. But I want to start out with the one that is upcoming at the time we're recording this podcast. It's shortly before South by South West 2023. This will be released shortly after the release. But can you tell us about the project that you're taking to South by and your involvement? Yeah. So I um, produce a lot of music videos. I run a small production company, Exit 12. And one of the artists that I worked with, Ben Abraham, approached me probably a year ago now and uh, said, hey, I there's another director I'm, I'm want to work with on my next video. Can you produce it? And Ben is an angel and I, I really enjoyed working with him. And so I said, of course, let me know the details. And it turns out the director that wanted to make a video for Ben uh, is Jillian Bell, who is an actress. And this was her directing debut. And so the three of us met up and collaborated and Jillian got a few of her friends from the comedy world to, to make this incredibly funny, quirky video for Ben's song, If I I didn't love you. And we are going to South by Southwest with that video. Ben, I had produced his music video for Another Falling Star and it was a great experience. We all got along really well. So yeah, he wanted to bring me on board. And this is through your production company. So you're representing yourself at South by both as a producer and as Exit 12. Yeah. And it's pretty funny because on the badge, you have to like put what company you're with. And so everyone involved in the project that's going to South by has been like hitting me up and letting me know what titles they are they're giving themselves. And like Ben has put it put himself, I guess, as Exit 12's intern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I told Ben, I was like, you will be the most overqualified intern uh, at the <laughs> festival. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Ellis is in the video. She put Exit 12. So we're all just representing Exit 12. It's oh, very great. exciting. Yeah. The whole presence. Mm-hmm. And applying to South by when you made the video, was it a goal to get into a major festival? Not at all. I mean, actually for music videos, it's it never even occurred to me to submit them to festivals. In this particular case, Jillian works a lot with the director and producer Brandon Dermer, who had had videos in South by in the past. And so when this video came out, he said, hey, we should submit this to South by. And I, I was like, 
oh, that's a great idea. It wouldn't even occur to me to do that. Let's 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 submit it. So I was about to do that and realized we'd missed the deadline. And I let everyone know I'm really sorry. We we you know we missed this deadline. And Brandon had the hookup. He was like, oh, we can get a late you know entry blink. Like I'm pretty confident because he has been in the festival several times in the past. So great example of having the right connections can really make something happen. I think we were able to submit like the day after their submission deadline. Okay, so having someone on the project that had connections at South by enabled that window to be extended, but you still had to submit like everyone else and be selected. Yeah. Yeah. He just, you know, hit them up directly. And what are your goals for South by? Obviously, it's a huge festival, but also conference and a lot of people just go to take meetings. How are you going to capitalize on the opportunity of having a presence there? I'm trying to think of it as obviously going to see the screening and and celebrating that screening with with the team that's there. But also, since I run Exit 12, I want to meet folks on the business side of the music industry. So label representatives, music managers, anyone that might hire a production company for their artists or want to talk to a producer. And the other group of people I'd love to meet, if at all possible, would be agency producers, people that work for, you know, in the ad agency space. I personally have a lot of experience producing commercials and branded content and ad work, but Exit 12 has not been lucky enough to land those sort of jobs or been been able to bid on this type of jobs. So I'm hoping to make connections at South By to maybe do some commercials this year. Yeah, by the time this podcast comes out, that will be old news. Yeah. (laughs) Already have the deals in the works. So for people listening, obviously the term producer is pretty fluid depending Mm -hmm. on the production. For this video, you were the producer and also the owner of the production company. Can you describe your involvement in this specific project from the inception? Did they come to you with a fully fleshed out idea? Were you involved in that process? And then how did the company oversight work? Yeah, so... Music videos work a little differently than I think the indie film world or other types of projects. Usually I'm approached by a director or an artist and there's generally an idea that's already in place of some kind. And then my job is to come in and let them know what's actually possible based on the budget they want to hit. So it becomes very creative in the sense where I'm I'm making suggestions that maybe are creative, but but with the purpose of hitting the budget we need to hit. So with this project, we had very, very little money. And so I told them very upfront, you know, these are the elements that we need to essentially get for free or for a very low cost. We These are the favors we need to call in in order to make this happen. And then here's how much the rest of it will cost. And to everyone's credit, everyone involved in the project made it happen. So that's why I, there's some people I just love working with. And, and Jillian and Ben are some of those people because I, I pretty much told them, I was like, yeah, so um, you're not going to get the dream location you wanted. And, you know, we're not going to get all any toys, you know, in terms of gear. But everyone was a team player. And so usually what happens next is usually I'm dealing directly with the label. In this particular case, it was more, yeah, Ben's management. But yeah, we arrived at a number that could work, made the project happen. Jillian got Jillian got like an amazing cast for this. She she asked her friend Mary Elizabeth Ellis and Mary Elizabeth's husband, Charlie Day, if they would star in this video and they both graciously agreed. And so it obviously was was so much fun. It was it was such a fun day despite the low budget nature of the project. I mean obviously the end result made the client happy and also landed a slot at South by. I want to back up way to the beginning now and figure out where you started before you got here. So the entertainment industry has always been of interest to you, but it wasn't always behind the camera. Can you tell me about how you first got started? So I was raised without a television for the most part. And so when the internet came along, you know, it's so crazy to think that, you know, my early childhood, that cell phones weren't really a thing and and the internet was this new exciting thing but yeah when when YouTube really specifically came along like that was where I went for my entertainment and now it's very common for young people but for the most part I don't think people in my age group were going to YouTube for entertainment when I was in high school because they were watching television I would say my family were early adapters to streaming because we didn't have a television antenna with TV so and streaming being early Netflix or yeah yeah, we I mean we got the DVDs um you know rocking that but I would say there was an openness to internet entertainment that I didn't see reflected in my peers necessarily so I was following a few YouTubers and I'm like trying to remember who I followed at the time this is probably 2008 happy slip what the buck Shane Dawson don't cancel me (laughs) 
<laughs> I can never keep up with who's been canceled or uncanceled at any given time. But those those were the big players, you know, that I was watching. So when I moved to New York shortly after graduating high school, I, I decided to pursue theater and acting. And at the same time, I was making my own YouTube sketches and starting my own YouTube channel, which never really went anywhere. But I remember I had one comedy sketch that had like 20,000 views, which was a lot for the time, yeah. you know, 2009. And I... And what, and what was the comedy sketch and how were you getting the gear to film this? And how were you coming up with the ideas and figuring out the YouTube platform? I mean, I had a handheld little camera. Phones didn't have cameras at the time. So I just had like a little handheld held camera that I would just sit on a stand. And the video that had that 20,000 views was a funny experience I'd had at Starbucks. I think it was maybe the the person had gotten my order wrong or something like that. And I played all the different characters and I filmed it in my dorm room. And uh, it was oh, out of like, focus. It's like a TikTok before TikTok. Yeah, yeah. No, truly, actually. Yeah, I should just repurpose this content for TikTok. <laughs> Unfortunately, everything is out of focus. So um, <laughs> it's an aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yes. I was pursuing acting in New York. I was studying theater and auditioning. And I saw a breakdown on one of the Actors Access, one of the websites where you go for, for auditions for Barely Political. And Barely Political was a major channel at the time. And they had a show called The Key of Awesome, parodying celebrities and music videos. Very ironic, actually, that I ended up working for them. Spoiler alert. Now that I work full time, like making music videos. But I reached out and told them in my submission. I, I'm on YouTube. Here's my channel. I understand the platform. And they reached out and hired me to play Hermione in one of their Harry Potter parodies. And while I was on set, their director mentioned that they needed an intern. And I was in school and looking for work, you know, something part time that I could do. And so I borderline harassed that director for the next two months, just letting him know I'm available. I'm going to school in Manhattan. I'm here. I'd love to intern for you guys. Like maybe we give it a trial run. And eventually we did that. And I ended up working for Barely Political for two years. Before you go on, when you say you kept letting that director know that you were interested. Was this over email? Were you running into him on other shoots and letting him know? No, it was was over email. Yeah. So after that one shoot, you know, it was a good experience. We had a great shoot. I followed up. I got his email on set because he mentioned he needed the intern. And I said, oh, well, why don't I, you know, I'd love to intern. I was interning in casting at the time. uh, And I interned at a talent agency or a modeling agency, rather. And so it was not a stretch. It made sense. I was like, yeah, I'm already interning. I'd love to intern on this you know, YouTube production side. I just want to touch on this because I think people are often afraid to follow up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you say borderline harass. I think people are are scared um, to be perceived as as doing that. What was his response to those emails? Would he get back to you? How did you just have the ambition to keep letting him know you were interested? If he had told me, sorry, not at this time, I probably would not have followed up again. Right. But However, he responded was probably in a not right now, but in a little while we'll need to make that decision type type of thing. And so, yeah, like a week later would follow up and be like, all right, so did you make the decision or, you know, am I in the the running or is there anything I can do? So I think just like I was very positive, upbeat, enthusiastic and clearly was a good fit because I just worked with them and it was a good working experience. And I was already on the platform and understood what they were doing, which was rare for them because I, I think they were just very used to people not understanding what YouTube was about what going viral meant. So and I was like young. And so I think they thought, oh, this is like a young person who could be our intern and then like help us stay relevant. And that absolutely was not the case. They forced me to get Instagram when I started working for them. I was like, I, I don't think this Instagram thing's gonna go anywhere. I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're at Key of Awesome as an intern. Mm-hmm. What were the next steps after that? And at this time, you were still in college pursuing a theater degree. Yeah. And actually, my theater professor, someone in the theater department, when they found out I was doing this internship was very confused by it and kind of concerned and (laughs) and like literally sat me down like called me in for a meeting and was like I want you to do an internship that can like lead to you getting work and I was like this will lead to me getting work (laughs) I promise you so I think there was just again that gap in understanding now nowadays working in digital is a very viable career option and everyone kind of knows that back then over 10 years ago people did not know that yeah definitely okay so then you were looking for work after graduation. You were not done being in front of the camera, but you were also starting to work behind the camera. What were the next steps between New York and Los Angeles? So the timing of it kind of 
worked out looking back great. And I, I'll just be honest, and I, I don't think I've ever talked publicly about this, but it it was like a very hard growing experience and I think maybe worth talking about. But I had worked for Barely Political for two years as an intern and doing a lot of different things in front of the camera, behind the camera, and had this amazing, you know, reel of material to show now for myself. And it, and it was great working there. But they didn't really need me. There was someone else who had previously worked for the company and kind of came back. And suddenly they realized they didn't need all the extra hands. And there was a very hard conversation where they were like, because I was graduating and, and they were like, You're, essentially, there's no full time opportunity for you. And I thought that I would be continuing to work for them and that that would be my job after college. And so to realize that was not going to be the case was really, really hard and opened me up, though, to, okay, do I even stay in New York then? What's keeping me here? I felt like I'd hit the ceiling with YouTube. All the YouTubers that I knew moved to L.A. eventually. I was also pursuing acting and auditioning regularly and was more interested in film and television than theater. So it it seemed like the signs were just pointing that I should move to Los Angeles. Um, So I graduated from college. I did a Lord parody with Barely Political that went super viral, millions and millions of views. And And, then playing Lord. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was playing Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I played their um, their fake Lord and kind of was like, okay, I'm going to use this momentum to get meetings in Los Angeles. I didn't know very many people in L.A. I knew a YouTuber who had moved out there and I knew someone from college who was another actor. So And had you ever lived outside of New Jersey at this point? Well, New York. I mean, um, outside of New Jersey and New York, besides my study abroad, where I studied in Ecuador for a few months, no. So I had been to Los Angeles for a week when I was 16 because I found an acting program that UCLA put on for high school students. And it was like a week long acting program. And I presented it to my parents, you know, like like kind of not 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 actually I didn't actually have a PowerPoint, but, you know, basically told them it would be a great idea for them to allow their 16 year old to buy her own plane ticket to go to Los Angeles to like pursue acting for a week. Uh, So I'd I'd been to LA or at least the UCLA campus for one week at this point. But I was very methodical about my decision to move out here in the sense of I've made a spreadsheet. I listed the two people that I knew. And then I started asking every other human that I knew if they knew anyone in Los Angeles and didn't matter what field they worked in, what they did. I would add them to the spreadsheet, see if I had an email, you know, get their email. And then I really didn't care that much about finances. I don't know why I didn't seem to ma- I was like, whatever. I I don't have that much money, but like I've never I've lived in New York the past few years and never had much money. This will just be the exact same thing. Just really didn't bother me at all. It's so interesting. Sometimes I talk to people and they tell me how much they saved up before they moved to L.A. or, you know, they was something they really planned for. And I was like, oh, yeah, I planned too for for a whole two weeks. I really planned my move. And I was like, okay, (laughs) time to go. And it did all work out. But looking back, I I don't know that I could make that move now. Mm. I was much more I I found all my first like places on Craigslist. But so anyway, I had this list of potential contacts and I emailed every single person on there, introduced myself for some of them, told them how, you know, maybe friend of a friend type deal and asked if they'd grab coffee with me when I got to L.A. And I stacked up meetings. I think I I was taking like two to three coffee meetings a day for my first month, meeting just as many people as I possibly could. When I would meet with someone, I'd ask questions. What did they do? Where did they live? Did they have any advice for me? And then I would try to end, you know, if Again, if it felt like the conversation is going well and I'm connecting with this person, I would ask them, do you know anyone else I should speak to? Mm. You know, I would tell them a little about what I wanted to do, which was acting and writing and just ask like, "Okay, do you know any actors or writers who would maybe talk with me? And one of the individuals that I met with was this music video producer named Melissa Larson, who had been referred to me by a production assistant in L.A. who knew a production assistant in New York who I knew. (laughs) And so that was the very convoluted way that I met Melissa. And she was the first person to see what I was doing. She'd seen, she she watched some of my YouTube videos. She watched some of the videos that I had written and acted in myself. And, and uh, did she watch that before you met with her? Yeah. I emailed it to her ahead of time oh. just to, to kind of give her an intro on like who I was. So when we met, she was really interested in, she thought it was super cool, the YouTube thing and, and the digital thing. And she was like, have you ever thought about producing? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Like I, maybe, you know, <laughs> Do you get paid? Like, (laughs) and she was working at a production company that made music videos and commercials. And I started working there as freelance, you know, started out as a PA and just worked my way up. My first year in Los Angeles through, again, just 
I think it was like someone who knew someone. I I got a job. Uh, the only quote unquote day job I had to get was working part time for media services, <laughs> production accounting, and just filing their paperwork for a few days a week. And then I was able to stop doing that once I started getting PA work. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I do want to touch on this as well, because I think the instinct for a lot of people is that they have to reach out to the person at the top and that's what's going to be the meeting for them. And you eventually did get to the meeting with the producer, but it was through your contacts at the PA level or at an entry level position that eventually set that up for you. Yeah, definitely. It's I would say very rare, actually, though, that that you land the meeting with the person at the top and then there's something that they can like tangibly do for you. Because I was interested in open to production, I would say that pipeline is maybe one of the lower barrier to entries because I would say the production department is a lower barrier to entry because everyone needs PAs and you don't necessarily have to have a ton of experience. You know, you can as long as you can learn as you go and you're willing to do this grunt work and that path of PA to coordinator to production manager to producer if you're if you're if you work hard and and you're you work fast and you learn fast you can totally get up that ascend the ranks yeah yeah you can ascend the ranks pretty quickly and so I think because I was open to it I mean that is something also though that was worked to my benefit was I was open to doing things that didn't fit with what I thought I was going to be doing. I really thought I was going to be acting full time, but I also knew I needed to pay the bills and I knew I didn't want to be bored and I knew I really wanted to quit media services. So yeah, when the door opened to PA, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll PA. And then the door opened to coordinate you know, a year later elsewhere. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll coordinate. And then someone I, I'd met, friend of a friend, Alex Haluk, ran into him. I think, where did I didn't you meet him in an editing lab? Yeah, I think I we had I had that's what it was. I had snuck into LMU <laughs> with a friend to use someone we knew went to LMU and like Loyola Marymount University. It's a film school in West LA. They someone we knew went there and was like, "All right, I'll sneak you in so you can use their like editing bay." <laughs> Because we really needed like a, a nice high-end editing bay for this project we were doing. And yeah, that's where I met Alex Luke. And then he ended up hiring me as like an AP. Yeah. And and I think we knew each other because of YouTube. I think we'd maybe met at the YouTube space once before. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Okay. So you're being resourceful and trying to find an editing station and then networking with the other people yeah. who are legitimately using <laughs> yeah. the editing station. And then he hired you as an associate producer. Mm-hmm. On what? So he was at Defy Media. And because I had the skill set I'd been developing in the commercial music video world to be essentially, I did a lot of office PA work and coordinating there. It was like a natural transference to start freelancing with Defy as an associate producer. And again, because I understood digital. Mm. So that combination. But yeah, digital in general is a great place to get your feet wet. I didn't know anything. I didn't go to film school. And so I was learning everything just as I went. And I will say digital was a great place to just, I mean, it sucks. I definitely made mistakes. And fortunately, I didn't make any mistakes at Defy. And so Alex continued to hire me. But I can definitely (laughs) think of other examples where I made mistakes where I did not get hired again. And that's okay. Mm. Live and learn. You mentioned that digital is a good place to start, which I agree with. But there's definitely a scale of digital productions or a spectrum, I should say, because mm-hmm. the digital YouTube content you were making with your Handycam, there's a big jump between that and some of the stuff they were doing at Defy, where they were pouring, you know, thousands of dollars into each video. And then also had this whole infrastructure of an in-house lawyer and an in-house producers and in-house gear and all of that kind of stuff. So where were you learning the skills to manage that scale of production? Was that on the music video side? Was that under Melissa? I would say largely under Melissa because this is something that I just got so freaking lucky. Basically, that company, which sadly no longer exists, Heresy, got a ton of work all at once that took all of their usual producers. It like booked them all out. And then Heresy landed a job that was like a collaboration with YouTube. Yeah, wow. And... Melissa had me start working on it. They couldn't find a producer to produce this project, but they needed to start. They're having meetings with um, it was a a collaboration between YouTube, Paramount and this company Heresy to create like a a short narrative sort of fun action packed four part series to promote their Terminator movie that was coming out. And they were going to pair Arnold Schwarzenegger with a bunch of top YouTubers. And it was going to be this, you know, dramatic. It needed to still feel like it was like a Terminator movie. So high production value. We'd shoot at the YouTube space. And I just started going to meetings. They were like, okay, well, maybe you can like assist the director. And so I'm in all these meetings, but they still couldn't find a producer. And then I just started to take on producer tasks. And Melissa pulled me aside one day and was just like, all right, I think you're going to produce this. She's like, you know who these YouTubers are. You know 
you you've shot at YouTube space and you time to yeah saying? like she just threw me into the deep end and she's like we're here to help <laughs> you said that it was lucky that things worked out this way but you took a lot of meetings before you had the connection that led you to meet this producer who led to the mentorship how many meetings or people would you say you reached out to you know i should uh, i should pull up that spreadsheet i still probably have it in my in my google sheets i would say i don't know 100 people on there okay so you reached out to 100 people before yeah. you found one that led to the opportunities you were hoping for yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. I feel like we skipped over some key moments of your LA experience. Uh, Should we start with Project Greenlight? Yeah, that was so okay. I'm all right. Set the scene. I'm at Media Services. I don't want to be there. I'm actually on the computer browsing uh, casting breakdowns. (laughs) Incredible. And I was looking at one. I was about to submit it, and the the person posting was like, this is a short film per- for Project Greenlight. And I was like, what's that? So I Googled Project Greenlight and I realized, I was like, oh, okay, this is like an HBO director directing competition. Uh, what what does that entail? What what are they looking for? And for those who don't know, Project Greenlight has, has uh, run for a few seasons and the latest season was on HBO and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and a, several other producers, Effie Brown, the Fairley Brothers were on that season. They were looking for a young director to direct their first feature film and the entire process would be filmed and it was kind of this docu-series show. But the first episode of the show was they would they would have a selection of 10 directors and then they'd pick one to direct this feature film. So the, the stage that they were at was they're like, anyone can just submit a three-minute short film and then we'll narrow it down to our top 10. And I didn't have a three-minute film that I'd made that I thought would work, but I did have a lot of YouTube friends who could make things very quickly. And so when I saw that the deadline was in a week, that didn't scare me. I was like, okay, I'll just make a short film in the next week. That's very normal. That's a normal turnaround for a YouTube project. And then I'll submit it and we'll see. And so um, I reached out to a YouTube contact of mine with a script. I, I wrote a script, I think that night. I chose a location we'd already shot a YouTube video at and we'd stolen the location, hadn't had any issues. It was like in the middle of the desert, perfect. And I was like, let's make this and like submit it to this contest next week. And he was like, great. And so that's what we did. And then fast forward through the months, we get through every level of, you know, they, they had all these like different, you know, they, they narrowed it down to the top 200 and then the top 20 and then we made it to the top 10 and ended up being on the show and for that short film i think a big hang up for people is they feel like they don't have the financial resources to make a short how did you make that come together i always recommend write something that you know you can achievably shoot like Taylor to location, especially the whole idea that I came up with was purely because I love this location. I knew we could get it for free. What was the location? It's actually federal property, but it's a <laughs> prison work camp in uh, the middle of the desert. <laughs> but I knew how to I knew that we could sneak on and we wouldn't have any issues. And it's pretty much at the time, at least 10 years ago, it, there was no one there that was going to stop us. So mm. and then I knew also that I like to act. So I was like, I'll act in it. And we probably are not going to want to bring more than like one or two cars out there. So I'll just have to make this a project that only like five people could make. (laughs) So that's what I did. And so with those guidelines that I wrote a script that would fit. I mean, I imagine this set a certain standard for what you thought your experience in LA was going to be just rocketing to the top, you know, 10%, 1%, I don't know, of, of all these people and, you know, getting FaceTime with Matt Damon. Were you surprised at all? Were you intimidated or were you too new to LA to overthink things yet? I just remember thinking it was so awesome. <laughs> like, I was like, this is dope. Like, LA rocks. Like, <laughs> I can't really pay my rent, but also I don't care. This is so great. Um, Yeah, I had the time of my life, to be honest. It was such a fun, exciting time. And you just have to enjoy the the moments when they come where it is so fun and exciting and just try to enjoy them in as uh, an uncomplicated way. I really think I just, whatever was happening, I just was trying to go with it, trying to enjoy the process. There were certainly moments of stress or confusion or worry about what if things don't work out, like all those self-doubt, like what am I even doing here? But I, I really just tried to enjoy the process. And I'm glad I did because there have been other periods of time out here where nothing has been happening for me or I've lost out on jobs I really wanted or, you know, been dropped by my agent or whatever. And, you know, so those the the, the really high moments get balanced by the really low moments and it's all very good in the end. But yeah, I I remember 
feeling this sense of validation through this process because I think there was still a piece of me that didn't quite value my skill set as a filmmaker. I felt like, well, I'm just a YouTuber and all these other people have all this experience and they've worked on sets before and they went to film school and they've seen all the movies that you're supposed to see in order to fully appreciate cinema. And I haven't seen those movies and I didn't grow up watching those movies. I didn't grow up watching movies or television. So I felt a little bit of that imposter syndrome. And then so so to then have Project Greenlight, which is very much in the traditional media world, validate the skills that I and, and other YouTubers had had was really awesome. It, it felt really good and it gave me a lot of confidence moving forward. I mean, my first ever pitch meeting ever was on that show. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. Really wish I could have had a few other pitch meetings under my belt to just understand how those sort of meetings can go. But it is what it is. I don't remember how it went. I kind of blacked out. Well, it's on the show. If you it's on the show. Watch I watched it one time exactly. And I was like, I never need to see this again. Why? I just, I get self, I'm like self-conscious, I guess, honestly. I, I feel like I didn't present myself as who I am because I was so nervous mm. and I was really concerned with trying to present myself as who I thought they might want me to be. And I didn't want to ruffle any feathers, which I shouldn't have worried about because looking back and thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it's a reality show. Like the person they chose to do this project is a very talented filmmaker, but also was not afraid to ruffle feathers. So I think there was like a lack of awareness on my part in understanding they're not only here to make a movie, they're also here to make a reality show. So anyway, did you feel like your training and acting prepared you for the on camera portion? Because this is a pretty specific circumstance where you are behind the camera but you are also in front of the camera because the show is documenting the process of trying to select someone to direct this movie. Did you feel like your acting sensibilities informed your presence on camera? Um, I, I do think I was more comfortable than some of the other directors. It was very evident to me who felt incredibly nervous to have a camera pointed at them. But I will say, and this is oh, it was so interesting, and I don't really have any experience with reality or and I, and I don't really work on documentaries. But after the first day, you really forgot the cameras were there. So that was interesting. I mean, we all kind of did. It was funny sometimes the things that, you know, all of us directors would be like, oh my God, I just said this. I forgot I was miked. I forgot. You know what I mean? You're like, <laughs> I mean, someone just straight up ordered drugs from his drug dealer and then like, hit me, like told me after he's like, oh shit, we're, we're being recorded right now, aren't we? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Pro tip. And then you also did a project through AT&T Shape. Was that after Project Greenlight? Oh, yes. That was a really unique, cool, interesting experience. So I met uh, Dickie Hartz, who is a filmmaker who happens to be deaf. And I studied sign language when I was uh, in college. I've always just been interested in, in sign, in American Sign Language. And so we met at a film festival. And since I sign a little, obviously, the communication was able to happen. And, and he had an interpreter there as well. But we kept in touch and he had written a short film. He's also an actor. And he'd written a short film that he wanted to make for AT&T Shape. And I'm trying to remember the details of how that all came about, but I don't remember if they gave us money to make this short or if we had to make it and then kept our fingers crossed that we might win and win the money. But it's basically a, a filmmaking competition as part of a an overall festival event sponsored by AT&T. Yeah. And, and the draw was that you could have the Warner Brothers backlot for a set amount of time to film your short. And so Dickie brought me on and it was one of the coolest sets I've ever been on because it was predominantly deaf crew and deaf cast and then a few hearing crew and actors and myself. And so we had interpreters. And so it was this added layer that could have made things really difficult and complicated. But because everyone was just so eager to make it work and and just and really communicating in, in so many ways, even for those who couldn't sign at all, and just being as open with body language and, and making sure that things are being communicated. If you need an interpreter, you've got one there. And anyway, we planned it out. I, I helped Dickie plan this out so, so closely, so um, exactly, I guess I would say so that we filmed, I think, at his 
his apartment for one day. And then when we got to the Warner Brothers lot, we were the most organized. We showed up and just took over this back lot. No moment wasted. Went through our scene. Bam, bam, bam. We only had it for a few hours. And I think that they were the staff there were really impressed. They were like, who what is happening? We took over like everyone out of the way. <laughs> we need this scene. All right, get over here. We need this shot, you know, but obviously we're signing it. And so I, I also remember it being a very relaxing experience for me because I didn't realize how much noise can just add to stress. Yeah. And so when there isn't as much noise, it was just so nice. Yeah. So was Dickie directing that or were you directing it? He was directing and I was producing. You're producing it. Okay. Yeah. Was your first directing experience? Well, I guess day one, day one is the name of the film that Kristen submitted to Project Greenlight. But you were acting and directing that. Um, when co directing, yeah, I co directed it with um, another YouTuber or someone I'd met through YouTube, Leo K. Angelo. So, yeah, yeah, okay. So, the film that you su- submitted to Project Greenlight Day One, you were producing that, directing it, and also in front of the camera. And then the film for 18 T Shape, you were producing it. I want to talk about Expiration Date, which is the first digital pilot for sci fi when you got to move into directing without also having to produce. Well, you definitely did producing work on that, but without having the full burden of producing or without being in front of the camera, what was that transition like? Oh, it was so nice. I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever (laughs) 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 to have to only think about the creative stuff. This is such a gift. (laughs) I just mean, how are you learning how Mm -hmm. to direct and how did filling those other roles inform your sensibilities when the time came to just focus on exclusively directing? That's a great question. I think honestly, watching other people direct has taught me more than I could have learned anywhere else because I'm constantly working with different directors, constantly seeing different directing styles, working with different DPs, seeing how they operate. So as a producer, it would be nice to get a little more time to just be on set and observing. And obviously I'm doing a lot, but in those moments where I can just see, especially on the commercial and music video side, how does the director communicate with the artist? How does the director communicate with the label or with the client? Those are things that are skills that maybe aren't as emphasized as much. Mm. You know, it, it becomes so much about the craft and the creativity. And obviously that's important, but equally important, I would say, is how are you as a communicator? Can you make the artist feel comfortable to be in this video, because if the answer is yes, they'll hire you again. They'll want to work with you again. Mm. You know, how are you at communicating with a client or with a creative agency? Because ultimately, if they feel like they're not being heard, you can make the greatest commercial of all time, but they're not going to want to hire you again. Yeah, I think that's why they probably say it's a business of relationships. And I, I know you've had to deal with some particularly difficult personalities. Oh, yeah. As well. So what is your strategy when you have those conversations? Well, I think my natural personality is that I don't let my feathers get ruffled very easily. Yeah. So it's like a good skill. It's just like a good personality trait to have as a producer, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) Yeah. People have asked me that before. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I I think also I try not to lose sight of the humor of the entirety. The, The fact that I'm even doing this job is so funny because it's like, how cool I get to make movies. I, I get to like tell stories for a living and, and and make things that are not real. Like it's just such a, it's, there's an absurd quality to it. We're not saving lives. So sometimes I, I just have to remind myself the stakes are, feel so high. The stakes feel, can feel very high, especially the bigger the budget. Right. But especially when you're in the bubble of people who all know the people that are starring in whatever project you're working on. Right. And yeah. all have skin in the game. Yeah, sure. And, and so it's that balance of, I care a lot and I care deeply, but I also have to keep it in perspective. Yeah. And and also sometimes when I'm in a really difficult situation with someone, uh, I just feel comfort in being like, well, I'll call Rebecca out on the drive home and <laughs> we can laugh about this. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like there's something about talking to other producers specifically mm-hmm. about your problems because you kind of see you see it all at one point well, or another. Yeah, we don't have time for therapy. So it's like this will have to do. <laughs> Okay, so for the expiration date pilot, I want to touch on that because true to some of these other projects, you did a lot with some resources, but fewer than you should have had ideally. And you got to direct an awesome action pilot and the first digital pilot that Sci-Fi did. Can you tell me why you decided to apply? Because it was basically a wide net competition, right? And then they were also narrowing it down. So basically, Sci-Fi wanted to create these digital projects and they hired Tongle to reach out to filmmakers directly to find out who 
who is going to have the best idea for this and bring us in on budget and all that and bring the options to sci-fi. I hadn't submitted for anything on Tongle before, but I knew people that had. And so I was familiar with the platform. And just the fact that it was the opportunity to direct something narrative was really attractive to me. And it was in a genre that I already enjoyed. They wanted to adapt a young adult novel on the Wattpad platform, so which essentially is like a self-publishing platform. They had the rights to a book on there. It was like a young adult female-driven sci-fi story. It was Expiration Date by Michaela Bender. Yep. Expiration Date. Yep. You know, I read the summary and, and started reading the book and I was like, I have a vision for this. I, I know how I would make this. So it would be crazy for me not to submit and just give it a shot because, yeah, I, you know, directing narrative. So fun. So yeah, I put together a pitch deck and had to film like a little intro video to who I was and how I might approach the project and just work my way up, you know, through the ranks or whatever, you know, they, they were narrowing it down. They, in the end, they chose three directors and gave each of us a little bit of money to make a pitch sizzle trailer thing to give an idea of what the project might look like visually. And so I did that. And then in the end, got the job. Mm -hmm. We made a 10 minute digital pilot produced by the one and only Rebecca Doyle. (laughs) Well, and at this point, too, we had known each other and and worked together before that digital pilot. But I want to highlight that you had a whole network of people to pull in people you had already worked with and figured out, you know, whether or not you felt like you creatively jived with them and got along with them, which also came from your time producing, which informed your time directing. Oh, absolutely. I would not have gotten that job if I hadn't been able to go above and beyond in such a huge way with that sizzle. And the only reason I was able to go above and beyond with that sizzle is because I had a massive network of talent and crew and locations that that already I had a good relationship with because I'd hired them on music videos or commercials. And so it's a much easier sell for me to approach someone and say, hey, look, would you do it for this amount? I know you're worth twice this, but this is the project and it's an opportunity to show up for me. And you know that I'll show up for you. And I have in the past. Right. And so it didn't feel like I was begging for favors in a way that made me feel gross because it was all people that I've hooked up with good paying work in the past and would continue to do so in the future. Yeah, it was kind of an investment Mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. And people were excited. I mean, they knew that I I wanted to do narrative. And so people were excited about it with me. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you decided to found Exit 12 Productions. Yes. What was that process like? Because it's another thing I think people are intimidated to do or they don't fully understand what running a production company entails. So again, I had freelance with a lot of different production companies of all different sizes, big ones, small ones, ones where there's no real office space and it's kind of just one person running jobs through it all the way up to they've rented out half a building, you know, or Defy where they've got several floors and they've got a legal department. So I'd seen the gamut. I'd seen some companies that were really well run not so well run, a little chaotic, right? So I I had a good idea of what I was getting into. I think sometimes people will start an LLC or a corporation and not quite understand what needs to go into it. If I could do it again, I'd probably hire an accountant to set it up for me just because it would have alleviated some of the stress because there are a lot of annoying legality, logistical things you really have to stay on top of. The state of California does not care that you forgot that every two years you need to refile your statement, you know, statement of the SOS thing. You know, it's like I've seen that people just don't stay on top of it with whatever it is they need to be doing to keep the company in good standing and up to date on the legal side. So how did you learn how to do those things? Google. Yeah. Asking people, <laughs> mostly Google, learning as I went. Yeah, I, I did it all myself directly. I didn't use LegalZoom. I didn't <laughs> or anything, you know, and I, it was definitely the harder way. But now I started it in 2019. Now we're a few years in and I've gotten the gist of it and, and know what to expect and how much to expect to pay for, you know, various licenses and taxes and all that. But yeah. Mm. And so since then, you've been able to use Exit 12 as a company to produce these other music videos and produce these other projects. Yeah. I mean, I would highly recommend if, you know, it just felt like the next step. I didn't want to run this sci-fi project through another company because I just wanted that control. I wanted to be able to make decisions and I'm not, I'm, I'm answering to myself. You know, it's like if I decide to spend the money on something, I'm answering to myself. I don't need to go get permission from Mm. someone else type deal. So I really loved it. It's a huge responsibility. It's small. It's really just so I can run jobs through. I work with a lot of directors and when they bring a job to me, I want to be able to say, cool, I can turn around a budget in a day and tell you exactly 
how much this is going to cost and the timeline. And I can give you all the answers. I don't need to answer to someone else or ask someone else. And so I'm able to move very quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Not mm-hmm. not bogged down by the red tape. No red tape. And then how did you go about getting those first few clients and projects? Even today, are these coming from existing people in your network? Are you doing bidding? It was very slow at first. I mean, I started the company in 2019 purely for the sci-fi project and then didn't really get a lot of requests. Not a lot of opportunities were popping up to utilize it, but I still kept it going and kind of was in my back pocket. I was like, you know what? I never want to have to go to someone else just because they have the company and it's all set up already. I want to make sure that I'm prepared and, and trusting that the opportunity will come. But yeah, it was it was pretty slow. I think I did a few small projects in 2019 and that's fine. And then honestly, just things started naturally started to pick up, started working with a director and he started to get a lot of work and he needed a production company to run it Mm. through. Right. That's a that's a huge one for the music video world. You as a producer, you really get your jobs because of the directors. So if if there's a director who is getting a lot of requests to work or has a lot of repeat clients like artists, you will work because, you know, you're paired with that director. And so right now it's all word of mouth. This is like another thing that I'm going to kind of keep an eye out for at South by Southwest. I'll just see if I meet the right people or if the right people are there. But there's companies that represent production companies and they kind of serve as an agent for the production company. And they put the production company up for jobs that you otherwise would not have access to or be able to bid on. So that maybe is the next step. I don't know. But right now I've been been pretty busy. I feel good. But I also will take on music videos that are, are of a pretty low budget. Not everyone will take that, but I can I can do those videos because I don't have a lot of overhead. Right. So it's it's just me and I scale up and down as needed. I don't have anyone full time. So. Right. Yeah. And you haven't been full time for anyone else since. And I guess even media services were part was part time. Right. But you've been fully freelance since then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Since I quit Trader Joe's and like. 2010, I have not had full-time job. <laughs> full-time job. I didn't know. I actually didn't know you were full-time at Trader Joe's. Actually, I wasn't. So I'm trying oh. to think if I've ever been full-time anywhere. <laughs> but I guess ha- no. <laughs> having some job where even media services, I guess the point I'm trying to make is you've been freelance versus having a quote-unquote stability that I think people find very attractive mm-hmm. about a longer-term commitment with an employer. Definitely. The, the lack of stability doesn't scare me. So it's a good fit for me. I also really like to travel. So... I never want to have to say no to a trip just because, oh, there's a conflict with work mm. <laughs> necessarily. So it it fits for my lifestyle, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everyone or even most people. Yeah. And so, you know, you've mentioned that there have been all these different videos. What have been some of the highlights with Exit 12? I know you've produced several for Phineas, who is now an Oscar nominee, Oscar winning mm-hmm. artist. So you've done several music videos for Phineas. What were those like and who are some of the other artists that you have enjoyed working with? Oh, um, yeah, the Phineas videos are so fun because it's the same core group of people behind the camera. Yeah. And we're all like such good friends. It, so it's it's just such a blast. And, and those that videos makes it very efficient, too. Absolutely. Yeah, we can. Yeah, because all those videos are one takes and the overwhelming majority of them. I mean, they're they're mostly all true one takes. Sometimes people will be like, "Oh yeah, did you had to cut there?" And I'm like, "No, that is that is one take." So there, there's been one or two that we've had to just by out of necessity because of logistics of like the location or whatever ha- have to cut. But but yeah, for the most part, so those videos are always really fun and creative. He's been on tour with his sister Billy Billy Eilish, <laughs> so we haven't done a video with him in a little while, but hopefully more this year. Ben Abraham can't say enough good things. Love working with him. Excited to be at South by with him. I've been working a lot with this new artist new new to me because i'm not in gen z i think he's quite known in this in gen z but this artist named marrow who's an absolute sweetheart um and that's like another one where it's the same team every time the videos Mm. are what they are in terms of budget and scale and all that but it's just so fun we just all have a great time and and create something very cool yeah i've been lucky i've worked with a lot of really great artists and good people yeah but you say lucky again i I just want to make sure we look at this practically here there's been so many projects that you have been up for and so much networking that you've done and so many times you've had to show up on set sometimes in different roles you know Mm. um i guess you could say you know oh you were lucky to have certain people you could pull on board when you directed something but it's kind of it's yeah, when you produce as many projects as you have and show up as many times and have a good work ethic and build good relationships with people, it's insane how the luck just appears, you know? Oh, yeah. I just more meant like lucky in that none of the artists I work with have been assholes. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Relatable. Yeah. Um, and so also, so during 
some of the downturns in freelance. I know you said the instability doesn't bother you, but I think for a lot of people, it's easy to kind of spiral. Mm-hmm. And there, I'm sure there have been ups and downs, even if it wasn't completely rooted in the instability of freelance. What were your strategies for getting through the times that were a little harder? I uh, very early on was in an acting class with a, another actor who gave me advice that was so good. She said, you know, you need to structure your life in a way so that you are never close to living beyond your means. Mm. She was like, I live in like a nice apartment. I really like it. You know, I've got this job at the bar. She's like, I can't pursue the opportunities I should be pursuing because of that. I need to be making a certain dollar amount. And so I can't take the time to pursue some of these smaller opportunities. You know, she was speaking specifically for acting, but it really stuck with me. And so I very early on, (laughs) some of the places I lived, I'm like, you know, they were they were dumps. But I really tried to live. I didn't I never wanted to be worried about my rent. The first couple of years, I mean, all my places I found on like Craigslist and they were just cheap. So this actor who was giving you this advice was saying that because she chose having a more expensive apartment or place yep. to live over. OK, so then she needed to work more hours, which sometimes deprived her of the opportunities to pursue smaller projects. Yep. OK. Got yeah. it. Yep. That's, that was it. So I just tried really, really hard to not let my expenses get high. And like I kind of just had that mindset even longer, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I kept having roommates longer than I necessarily needed to. But I just it was that men- mentality of, yeah, I, I just don't ever want to have to get a day job or be worried about finances. I mean, there definitely were times where it was getting a little dicey. I was like, I hope hope my credit cards Hold up the next month or two while I figure out how I'm going to pay them off, uh, you know. And then what would happen? How would you get the next gig? Well, I've always been very network minded in the sense that I'm always trying to like keep relationships going. And if I sense that there might be an opportunity to work with someone, trying to stay in their mind in some way, saying yes to opportunities that, again, didn't necessarily fit in with the narrative of what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I moved to L.A. to to work as an actor and a writer. And I did get paid opportunities for both of those things, but that's not what was necessarily paying the bills, production. But I did keep doing, especially the writing, and even to this day, do take writing gigs here and there. Because I really, you know, they say like, oh, have multiple streams of revenue. And when you're freelance, it's kind of like, yeah, that's all it is. (laughs) But also some people really do just know me as a writer. Not as much. I couldn't make a living doing it. But those side gigs here and there. And if you know yourself and you know that you're someone that spends money the minute you make it, I would not recommend freelance. (laughs) Yeah. I really wouldn't. What are you looking forward to now? Obviously, continuing to build Exit 12, the projects you're doing through there, you've really established yourself as a very competent music video producer, but you also are still writing and there's things that you're developing. Do you want to touch on those? Yeah, I have. Let's see. What do I have going right now? So I am developing a narrative idea that I don't want to dwell on too much because it's not at a place to talk about yet, but it would be a feature. And I'm talking to an actor about it. And that's all I'll say on that. Okay. And there's a couple digital projects that I've worked on over the past year or two and some I can't get into detail about but but they're definitely in the digital world in some way actually it's some of it yeah has been like narrative digital content writing for specifically creators for their their content so yeah so just being in the YouTube world and keeping some of those connections alive I still get work working with directly with creators sometimes um, as well as for companies that make digital content mm. um, and so little gigs here and there and that's all remote it's all writing for the most part and music videos I'm in pre-production on two I just delivered a video to Interscope Friday very excited for that video to come out. I'm in the bidding stage for a a music video and a larger influencer campaign for this artist. So hopefully they pan out. But yeah, we're just in the bidding stage on both of those. Mm. And are I'm you, sure there's stuff I'm forgetting. Are you writing any novels? Oh, yeah. And I'm like writing this novel that I've been writing since the pandemic that I just think it'll it's like my you know, you ever seen Waiting for Guffman, you know, that play? Yeah, it's where it's just like there was a Guffman that was Oh, wait, no. Waiting for for Godot. Godot. Oh, sorry. The spoof (laughs) is waiting for Guffman. Wait, that's really funny. <laughs> um, yeah, waiting for Godot. It's like it's like my waiting for Godot. Like you know, they're they're speaking about someone that never actually arrives. And I feel like this novel is something that I'm like, will it ever? 
Can it ever exist? Can I ever finish it? I don't know. I think yes. Okay. Tune in for your five-year episode to oh my hear God. the views. Yeah. yeah. It's been a process. But yeah, I'm also writing a novel that's a true crime vibes sort of story. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I want to get into the time capsule segment of this podcast. I firmly believe that Every single person I am talking to on this podcast and will bring on the podcast already has a measure of success, but it's just the very beginning, just the beginning of your career, but it's going to be even more successful. And I really believe that. So I'm very happy to freeze this moment in time so that you don't forget, you know, I love that. (laughs) I absolutely love that. I've been an avid journaler since I was like six. So yeah, that's good. I'm like obsessed with the time capsule thing of like, I need to know exactly what I was thinking and feeling at this time and place. Are are they physical journals? Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's risky. Are they insured? (laughs) It's the producer, right? (laughs) Okay. So have a past, present and future. If you could talk to yourself 10 years ago, what would you say? Literally nothing because she wouldn't listen. (laughs) Okay, what about five years ago? (laughs) Five years ago. Hmm. I think maybe advice I'd give to myself in my early 20s is your priorities are going to shift and don't focus so much on your career that you lose sight of the importance of friendships and good relationships with depth. Mm, that's solid advice. Mm. So for the present, and these are kind of rapid fire. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite song right now? Oh, <laughs> well, I've weirdly been listening a lot to the Moulin Rouge soundtrack. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess so one of those songs. This episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know why I'm like, you know, I actually do know why. I saw a video of Aaron Tveit singing on Instagram. I saw him singing Roxanne. Uh, <laughs> someone like filmed him when he was on Broadway and th- his voice is so amazing. And then I was like, wow, th- that is a great song. That's actually a great musical. And now I've just been listening to the movie's soundtrack. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is the best movie you've seen in the last year? Don't say Moulin Rouge. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I actually haven't seen Moulin Rouge since like high school. Um, it's, for me, it's definitely about the music. Best movie in the past year? That is such a hard one. I know I'm going to regret any answer I give immediately. Yeah, I mean, well, I can say that I enjoyed Tar. I wouldn't say that it was my favorite film of the past year. But of the award show movies, I think that one stuck with me because I think it asked. It it just presented some questions and didn't necessarily lead you to the answer. And I love when a movie can do that. Mm. It wasn't preachy, but it was like it definitely raised some some questions and some conversations we should be having. Yeah. What food or drink item are you currently obsessed with? I have a hypothesis, but I'll I'll let you answer. LaCroix, <laughs> obviously. Absolutely addicted. Are you ever on set? Uh, <laughs> um, what is the latest software or filmmaking tool that you've loved to play with? Oh, Hot, hot Budget. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Dude, did you know that Hot Budget just upgraded? There's a new version, and I'm terrified. I've heard it. it's really not as intuitive interesting mm. yeah I, I love hot budget did you did you ever use hot budget back when it was free uh maybe i guess i don't know what year it became it was not like free. maybe 2016 2017. then yeah I, w- I would have been using it i mean i've been using it since like 2014 2015 oh, okay. Since yeah inception mm-hmm. okay so that's the latest software you've loved playing with <laughs> it's the only software later <laughs> well didn't you recently get something that you really liked running production for oh i mean rap book i'm obsessed with rap book Oh, yeah. Yeah. They should give me 10% every time I convince someone to start using it. Shout shout out on this podcast. Just wrap up, wrap up, wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Wrap up. You should sponsor Rebecca's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What is the most recent lesson you learned? And I have in directing and I also want to hear in producing for this. Yeah. Hmm. Trying to think like, what have I worked on recently? (laughs) Let me think. A lesson learned. Usually this comes from, I think, trial and error. Like people Mm -hmm. try different kind of edit or they realize something should have been, you know, lit differently or maybe you should background check your actor or, you know, whatever it is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to start background checking my actors because I we had a real weirdo show up on set recently. But I also am like, I know I'm not going to do it because also I'm like, it's you have to pay for that. Right. And I'm not going to like budget to pay to background check my L.A. casting actors. But yeah, okay, so you didn't learn that lesson. Okay, So I, it's a lesson that I would have liked to have learned if it was possible. Mm. It's not. 
I think a lesson I'm constantly just having to there's like a balance as a producer and especially as the producer who is running the company that this job is is running through right is in you know in charge and there's that constant balance that need needs to be struck between yeah the logistics and what makes sense and where do you really try to let the creativity dictate a decision and that can be really hard because when you're the one that's responsible for all the finances it's it can be hard to be like, let's take this risk in some way, mm. you know? So building trust with directors and trusting some of some of the directors I work with are a bit older. They have a lot more experience, some of them. And and so it's like trusting them with some of the creative decisions and that things will, will fall into place. And so letting go in some areas, I'd say that. So maybe that's the lesson. Mm. Um where, where can you let go? You know, and, and, and it's like, it's hard as a producer, you want to control everything. And sometimes you, you just you have to let it go. Yeah. What are your current interests or hobbies outside of filmmaking? What? <laughs> I don't Make, know. Making homemade lemonade. Don't know her. Lemon tree. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I am obsessed. So I have like, yeah. Oh my God. Lemon everything. I, you know, I've really gotten into cooking the past few years, mm. ever since the pandemic. So cooking, I would say is, is a passion. What do I do outside of work? I hang out with my friends a lot. I, it's a priority. I, every week got plans. You volunteer, you travel, all sorts. Oh yeah, I'm a big traveler. Yep. I, I took a month off last year and hiked for a week in the Pyrenees in northern Spain. My friends and I hiked in northern Spain and then we hiked into a country called Andorra that I did not know existed until I was there. And that was really cool and I loved it and kind of want to move and become an Andorran, but they certainly don't want me there. They don't want anyone there. They're like, we live a good life and don't want the outside world to know about us for sure. And then I just spent a- another few weeks after that, just just traveling wherever I fancied. And it was great. I ended up in Zurich at the same time as the Zurich Film Festival. Oh. <laughs> totally unplanned and met some filmmakers. And that was wonderful. Went to Berlin for the first time, fell in love, mm. immediately submitted all my music videos to the Berlin Music Video Awards with the hopes that... <laughs> I'll get, I'll go because yeah. I really want to go to Berlin. Yep. It's a good spot. Mm-hmm. Who would be the dream collaborators for you? Hmm. That's a tough one. You. Oh, thanks. We can make that's an achievable dream. Yeah. <laughs> I, but that's the thing is like I want to collaborate with like the known entities that I know I'm going to have an awesome time with. Yeah. The reality is just because someone maybe their creative work is is great doesn't mean that I am going to enjoy working with them. Like I, mm. it's just the reality. Right. So I like working with the people I've worked with before <laughs> who I who I know are awesome. <laughs> P- Paging Grey Gold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the future section of the time capsule, five years from now, where do you imagine you will be living? In Los Angeles. Mm. Yeah, I always, I had a moment in the pandemic, as I suspect many of us had, of if I did move somewhere else, where would I live? Well, because especially in production, all of the prep and wrap is now remote. And there's enough remote work in general that I was like, okay, I could probably make it work. I I know a producer that moved to Michigan and he makes it work and flies back for shoots every so often. But yeah, you know, know, so and I really could not come up with an answer. I was like, I actually do really love LA. I love the people here, the creativity. I love my job. I love the film industry for all of its faults and quirks and ups and downs. I really love it. So I can't imagine living somewhere else. Great. Yeah. I'm glad you're not jumping ship on us. Okay. So five years from now, is there anything you hope will have been invented? Oh, hmm. I mean, rap book already exists, so just kidding. <laughs> for those who don't know, rap book is like a payroll service. <laughs> but for producers, that's like Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Okay, the year is 2028. Which of the three unreleased Avatar films is the best? I, w- I won't know because I won't have seen any of them. <laughs> well, you haven't now either, so take yeah. a step. <laughs> Um, I think the one that just came out, Way of Water, Mm -hmm. will have been billed as the best one because, you know, the next two or three or whatever, three, three will have, you know, people will be like, oh, they, they, it's clear that that they ran out of story ideas. Oh, really? Oh, that's a hot take. I'm interested to come back and listen to this. I don't know anything about Avatar. (laughs) No, 
I mean, you know, obviously, it's, if you have any, there's no way anyone can have an opinion on the movies that haven't been released yet. Right. But I'm just interested to see people's predictions. Mm. Okay. For the next 15 to 30 seconds, you can leave a voicemail for yourself in 2028. Hey, um, I hope you didn't become a massive fan of Avatar because you're going to be really <laughs> embarrassed because you actually have been now on two podcasts on that movie franchise. <laughs> And curious to know if you stayed in L.A. And if you did, good for you. But if you're somewhere else, I'm sure it's great. And yeah, probably Europe, maybe. And I just hope you're happy and doing something interesting and not bored. Awesome. (laughs) Solid voicemail. Um, Well, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on. It's only our second episode of the podcast. I'm so glad we could have you. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? I am Kristen's Reality. It's Kristen with a E-N-T-E-N. I'm a 10, not a tin. (laughs) And uh, my company Exit 12 is exit underscore 12 spelled out. Because the number 12, exit 12 with the number, that URL was taken by some band in Idaho. And <laughs> the guy like refused to sell me the URL. So yeah, so I'm exit-12.com. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Here is a recap of some takeaways from my conversation with Kristen. One, if you want to make a film but have limited resources, tailor your writing to something you know you can shoot, especially regarding filming locations. Two, often lateral referrals will connect you to the meeting or job that will open the next door for you, so be proactive in networking with your peers. Three, it can take 100 meetings to get to the one meeting that can change the course of your career. Four, career trajectory is full of ups and downs, so it's important to take in the fun moments when they come. Five, if you want to direct, watching others direct is a great education. Six, your work may be good, but good communication with a client or agency is how you get hired again. Seven, freelancing is a good fit if instability doesn't scare you and you are good at managing your money. And eight, sometimes for the creative success of a project, you have to relinquish control, trust your collaborators, and let go. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.